there, there's a line in that song that is repeated throughout. Um, and it, man, the way that crescendos and builds up is just so powerful. Um, but there's a line um, in, in that song that builds up. Um, there is no one higher than our God. There is no one higher than you. And I, I love how it just calls us together to sing with one voice um, and, and state what, it, what, we, what we you know, know and what we take for granted and what is obvious, but just saying that and saying that over and over again. Uh, there's something about singing that song, really any uh, of the songs that we have this morning, but singing those words just demands a little louder and a little louder of a voice um, and the way it builds up and the way that chorus just kind of um, moves. It's so reviving to sing that with you all. And, and you know, revival comes from the place, not when our condition or our status improves. I think sometimes we think that, you know, God, if, if this could just get better or that could get better. But that song really uh, reminds me that revival does not come um, from improving of our conditions or our statuses, um, but it comes from getting in sync with and getting in touch with the unchanging, the higher, and the greater than anything else status of our God. You know, this is the secret of worship, the secret to prayer. It's really what drives all of our services, all of our worship, all of our preaching. Um, and the truth is, revival rarely, if ever, comes with a change in our status, but from and with a change in our posture. Revival is not paywall behind things getting better for you and however that looks for your life. And I hope things do if you've got an area of your life that you're praying for God to move in or improve in. But listen, revival does not come. It rarely, if ever, comes with a change in your status or your condition. Revival comes from wherever we're at, wherever we're going through. Revival comes from a place and with a change in our posture. As in, when we see who and where God is, it doesn't matter what or where we are, all of a sudden... The things of this earth become strangely dim. And the light of His glory and grace and the aura of His beauty and His wonder and the spectacle of His love and His power, we start seeing that, you know, God is bigger. The universe is so much bigger. And you say, well, that doesn't make really me feel better. It makes me feel small. But it shouldn't make you feel small at all. It should make you feel, and it means that you're significant and that your circumstances can bow at the cornerstone of all creation. You know, our worship and, and what I believe is biblical worship. Biblical worship brings about a substantial, sustainable, lasting revival, not just an incremental, fleeting, limited refresh. Listen, I hope that you're, you're, you know, you're refreshed by what we do on Sundays, but that's not my goal. My goal is not to have you walking out here on Sundays thinking, wow, that was the best experience of my life. Uh, because here's the thing. You're not sustained. You're not kept alive and strong uh, just because you have these awesome meals every once in a while, right? Now, you enjoy having a good meal and going to a good restaurant, but what keeps you alive is the fact that you take care of yourself every day, right? And you eat, and you are healthy every single day. It's a diet that you don't just eat once or twice a month and think, wow, that was great. It's going to hold me over to the next time. You eat every day, multiple times a day, right? Because, and you don't think about that, do you? You don't think about, well, you know what? Well, man, those, those three mundane meals I had yesterday, they kept me alive, but they did, didn't they? And the thing about worship, and the thing about what we do, and the thing about what the Bible calls us to do, it's not just about having these moments of refresh. It's about having substantial, sustainable, lasting revival. And I believe when we get in sync and in tune with what God is doing to all around the world, all around the universe... And it's not just about our little corner of the world. We get refreshed. We get revived in a way that isn't limited. And, and, and which is why I'm not, and this is why we're not, and the Bible is not, and Jesus was never interested in just giving us what we want 
and given this instant satisfaction. Christianity is much more interested in us uh, cluing into the bigger picture, which is something Jesus talked about a lot. Um, bringing our attention to who is above us, not what is around us. And, and I want to clue y'all into what Jesus wants to clue us into today and, and, and the message and the meaning behind whatever we do as a church. You know, the, the fact that our God is highest means He deserves the loudest praise. Our God is greatest, so He deserves the most glory, right? So there, there's something to that, right? The volume, right, and the amount that, that God deserves the most, He deserves the loudest but Jesus came to accomplish two things, these two things, but he wasn't driven by sheer duty just because, hey, God needs more people and God needs a louder voice. He was moved by his love for us, right? Because yes, God deserves praise and glory, and yes, he is highest, and yes, he is greatest, but more than that, above all of that, God is love. So he desires us more than what he deserves. He desires us to be saved as His children, His children, to be saved in Him, to be secure in Him, to be singing together. And you know what I've realized, and really singing that song has taught me, singing all the songs that we do as a church, they carry the similar message of how incredibly kind and good God is to us, and, and, and not just to me, but to us. And I'll tell you this, it's hard for me to sing some of these songs by myself anymore. You know, and I love going listening to the radio and, and, and whatever, turning on, you know, putting my headphones in. But some of these songs, I just can't sing them and I just can't listen to them by myself because those experiences pale in comparison to being in the house of God with the people of God singing together. Because it's not just my voice. And when it's just my voice, it becomes so insular. And when I'm with y'all, when I'm in a house where people are singing out together, that is an experience like none other. And it's an injustice to worship sometimes when it's just us. And we miss out on what God is up to and others that are involved in that. And, and, and you know, no one higher begins with the words, our Father. Not just my Father. He's my Father. He's your Father. But He's our Father. And that's how Jesus taught us to pray, isn't it? Even when we're praying by ourselves, He taught us to pray with this reminder that it's not just me and God. It's us and God. And I think in our world today, even as connected as we are, you know what, you know what every, every one of your friends are doing. You know what every one of your enemies are doing, right? You know, people that you don't like, right? We know what everybody's doing in the world. We are so connected. And we are so tempted to make worship an individual exercise, aren't we? We're so connected, but we still have made worship such an individual thing. And it's never been the case. It never was supposed to be. The case, and, and I've told y'all before, but being a pastor clearly has influenced this. But I, I, I have in my sermons and in my teaching, I, I talk a lot less about I, my, and me, and I talk a lot more about us, our, and we as I get older. Um, and, 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 and you know why I've arrived at that place? Because this song ain't just about me, okay? And I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings, but it's not just about you either. It's about our God and it's about us a part of his family. And I know there are churches that might present Christianity in a very individualistic way to great numbers. But the goal of our church, the goal of the church, isn't that we be a full building full of I's, my's, and me's, but to be a unified body of us's, of ours, and of we's. That's the goal of the church. We are connected. We are a body because we share a father, don't we? who deserves and desires. We are brothers and sisters. And we can't ignore one another because to ignore one another is as bad as ignoring our Father. 
And here's the thing. I know this is true because I've been and really am still on both sides of this altar. It's a lot easier for me to preach sermons that concern I, my, and me. It's a lot easier, a lot more enjoyable, a lot less work, too. It's easy for me to prepare, easier for me to digest, but I can't do that. And listen, as much as you might prefer those kinds of sermons, and as they're so black and white, so cut and paste, you won't be a better person for them. Because I, my, and me just means I leave here, and I've been given this biblical motivation when it's all about I, my, and me, and, and somebody takes the Bible and makes it all about I, my, and me, then I leave with a, a biblical ambition to prioritize I over us, me, uh, me over we, and my over ours. And when I make the Bible and I make Christianity, I make faith all about me, all about my, all about I, us, we, and our suffers for it. And God is not pleased with that. It doesn't lead the humanity. It doesn't lead the church. It doesn't lead us anywhere good. So God forbid Christianity cater to our already selfish tendencies. You know, it's needful that whatever we hear from God brings us into a much larger conversation to what He's saying to everybody else. You might prefer the message to be I, me, and my centric, but you don't need that, and it won't help you. And it definitely won't help us. And figuring out how we all fit together, it requires more work. It's messier. It demands more from everybody. But it's worth it. And the Bible presents no other way. Because no matter who we tune into, no matter where we plug into, what we choose to believe, you and I, you and I all are many. I, my, and me's. We are all a we. And you are God's. And He is our Father. From the very beginning of humanity's story, of the planet story really, if you open up to Genesis and read the first 11 chapters or so, you can follow this, this thread. And you might disagree with me when I say this, but I think it's undeniably true. And you can find this from reading history, reading the Bible. Humanity is at its strongest and its healthiest when, there, when there's more us, we, and our. But we're at our weakest and most dangerous when more people live from a place of I, my, and me. Wars are fought, injustices are committed, atrocities are done because people live from an I, my, and me point of view. But we as a people are stronger and are healthier physically, mentally, emotionally, and obviously spiritually. We are stronger and healthier when we live from a place of we, are and us. It's always been true and we shouldn't think we're any different. And it's more than just having a friend or a spouse. It's about plugging into, being connected, wired by, into something bigger and broader. And something I've gathered from studying the Bible, from just immersing myself in history, not just God's people in the church, but studying history and sociology in general. There is a thread that you can follow back to the beginning of time. A thread that suggests a shared need, a want, and a desire that has been present in all people from every age, every generation, in every culture and corner of the world. And I think that the Bible, I think that history speaks to the shared need, the shared want, the shared desire. And I think that we might first shirk, uh, this is truth, but I want you to pay attention because I promise you there's more here for you than you may first admit or realize that there is a human desire, a universal human desire that is evident across any observation of human, humanity in our nature. Within the stories in the Bible, this desire is often front and center. Oftentimes, it's the undercurrent of the narratives and teachings. 
What we find in the Bible more than any other history book is that we find the source of this desire and the solution for this desire. From the very beginning of Scripture, we find that there is a desire which is a reflection of God's image within us, an imprint of God's fingerprint on our soul. And the desire that I'm talking about is a desire for community, a need for others in your life. And for some people, for some of you, you check out at this slide. And I get that. For some of you, at this point, at this point in the sermon, at this idea, you are thinking, hey, I'm out of here. But I promise you, and I just beckon you, please, 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 I think God has something to say to you today. Now, before you push back and say, I'm just fine by myself, or well, I don't know where you're going with this. I have my friends. I have my family. So why the sermon? By desire and need, I don't always mean a want. Sometimes we don't want community, but that doesn't mean we still don't need it. And it may suggest how much we actually need it, how much more we need it than we realize. So today and next week, we're going to follow this thread um, in a study that I'm calling Collide, Collide Together and Collide Forever, uh, under the idea of stumbling along, but not stumbling alone. Because life is sometimes all about stumbling. We stumble along the road But I believe that we don't have to. And nobody wants to. And God has made a way for you not to have to stumble alone. Now, if you have a Bible, we're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 4 today, if you didn't catch the title card. Ecclesiastes 4, that's kind of in the center of the Bible, which makes uh, this even more important or even more kind of profound, that that kind of from the center of the book, we have this universal desire kind of spelled out for us, and in whichever direction you go in, you can find some help um, from. So I want to read this passage from Ecclesiastes today. It's advice from perhaps the wisest man that ever lived, a man who knew it all, did it all, and had seen it all, yet seemed to say that this was the most important advice that he could possibly leave with us. If you read his writings from his younger years, um, he wrote Proverbs about wealth and about leadership. But as an old man, he changed his focus to something more important. Ecclesiastes 4, verse 9 through 12, these are some of the most important verses you can ever lay your eyes on. Verse 9, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, One will lift up his companion, but woe to him who is alone when, when, is that a typo? No, that's not, is it? When he or she falls. Woe to him who is alone when, because it's going to happen when he falls. For he has no one to help him up. Well, that's what happens when you fall and you're alone. Again, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him, and a threefold cord or not is not quickly broken. Verse 9 kind of dangles a reward in front of us. And what is that reward? The reward is each other. And this is very important that we establish this before we get any farther. This is so important for any relationship, any partnership, whether personal or professional. Relationships are like soul contracts. It's like my soul and your soul are being brought together by God's Spirit, and He is seeking to wire us together and knit us together for His cause, His purpose, His kingdom. And we need to remember this and acknowledge this, lest we view relationships as a means to an end other than the relationship. The most important the most valuable, the most vital reward out of a relationship is one another. 
If you are in a relationship and you see the reward as something they can give you or something they can do for you, you are dangerous to the other person. And they are not good for you. This is professionally, personally. Too often we look at the person on the other side of the room, the other side of the table, the other side of the bed as someone we're just using or benefiting from in an impersonal way. Someone we just pass by day after day. And I shouldn't have to say this, but I really think in today's world it needs to be said more than ever before. The most valuable asset in a relationship is not provisioned or productivity. It's the person. What is most valuable about your friendship, about your marriage, about your relationship with one another in church or any environment? It's the fact that they are a person valued by God and that you should value above anything else. You think, why does this need to be stated? Here's why. Because the drift of any relationship or partnership, home, church, or business, is to gauge the health of the relationship by what is brought to the table by the other person, what contribution they are making. And while that is important, that is not the foundation of any relationship. The cornerstone are the members of the relationship. If someone thinks they're just a number or a commodity, they lose motivation and they seek to be replaced or replace. Here's what I'm getting at. We have to value each other before we benefit from one another. And there may be things that you never benefit from the person that you're around or the person that you're in a relationship with or the environments that you're in because you don't value them. You value yourself. And you have lost sight of what God is trying to do in that relationship because God has knit you together with them for you to get this. Because verse 10 says, if they fall, one will lift up his companion. Well, I wonder who the one is. It's you. It's supposed to be you. It was always meant to be you. And then it turns it on us. But woe to him who is alone when, because it's going to happen, when, because it does happen, when, when he falls for no one is there to help him. Here's Here's where what we do and what we bring to the table does matter because we are responsible to be productive and provide. Yes, most definitely. But in every, in any relationship... We are responsible for one another. This might press you a little bit the wrong way. There's something in you and there's something in me that presses back against that. And I wanted to delete this from my sermon because it convicts me. Of course there are bad relationships. We push the brakes on this idea. How in the world could I ever be responsible for them? Do you know what they do? Do you know what kind of mess they make? Do you know what kind of conflict they bring? And you're saying I'm responsible for them? Yes, you are. More importantly, those relationships that God calls you into that you cannot avoid, that God seems to have ordained. This speaks more to the one not doing their part than the one that does their part day after day. Of course, in a relationship, presence is a must. It's a given. But your input is required. Relationships don't exist without presence, but they won't last without input. They won't last without what do you bring to the table and how are you taking responsibility? Well, they need to take responsibility for their own life. Of course. But you have been called to take responsibility for their life as well. Now, speaking of the much larger narrative, verse number 11 speaks to a community that's being built. This isn't just speaking of two individuals. This speaks to something that God is trying to build 
And here's the thing. I'm going to stumble. You're going to stumble. But what if there's a way to minimize the damage? What if there's a way to, to stumble together, but not alone? This verse 11 suggests there's a community that God is trying to build there is some good and there is help and there is healing that is only found in and from community. Now, maybe you don't want to hear this, but you might need to. Some of your biggest issues, some of your biggest issues, maybe a lot of your biggest issues, could find big relief in community. And there's things that you don't want to open up about. There's things that you don't want to talk about. There's things that you want to keep in the dark. But if you would bring them to the light, some of your biggest hurdles could be overcome if you were just in community with God's people and if you handled your relationships the way that God says you should handle them. Listen, we are more connected than ever, but we are more lonely than ever. And we're weaker and vulnerable and more fragile than ever. And I know that you're thinking you don't want... You don't know what I go through and you, know, you don't have any business telling me I need to be closer to people and I need to be responsible for people. But listen, even the best fall down sometime. Even the wrong words seem to rhyme. And out of the doubt that fills our minds, I somehow find that you and I were going to collide. But what if we could collide together rather than collide and fall apart? You know, community is circular. A break in the circle damages the integrity of the idea of the design. Now, whether you agree with that or not, the Scripture is true. And verse 12 talks about this cord, this knot that cannot be or will not be broken. These ideas are not new in Solomon's days. They were as old as time itself. But why did he have to preach them? Why did he have to say things like this in Proverbs 18? Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. You know why it says that? Because the drift of humanity is to always isolate, separate, and break away. But the need and desire for community is something that you can't afford to ignore. And this is bigger than just your marriage, your group of friends. Those things can become their own form of isolations for any two, three, four people. The Bible calls us something bigger. And I want to prove that by showing you some breadcrumbs from the earliest pages of the Scripture. And there's something so pure about these truths because they're not covered up or they're not over-engineered by religion and experts. The very foundation of creation, the very basis of the creation story is all about God's desire to build community and for us to be in community. And this communal desire is a thumbprint of God. It's so evident in the seeds of our own stories found in the beginning of humanity's story. Early on in Genesis 1, God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness because God is triune and God is in harmony, Father, Son, and Spirit. And God made us with that same desire, that same notion, that same need for community. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him, male and female. He made them as a couple, right? Emphasizing the importance of community. And then after the fall happens, and, 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 or actually before the fall happens, God made this comment to Adam. It is not good that man should be alone. And he says, I will make for him a helper fit for him. And this isn't just speaking of marriage. Throughout the scripture, we see the importance of God bringing people into each other's lives and how they bring value and growth to each other. There's a story of a man named Enoch. And, and there's just this one kind of verse that we pass by so quickly. But the scripture says that Enoch walked with God after, after, after he fathered Methuselah. So something happened in Enoch's life after he you know, had his son, began to have this relationship with his son. It changed his life. 
Then after that story, there's more corruption. The flood happens. God seeks to rebuild through Noah, and Noah's family has conflict and sin. It ramps up its machine and deception and rebellion once more. It all comes to a head in Genesis 11, which is about the Tower of Babel. Well, the whole earth seems to have found unity, but not around the right thing, around a dangerous thing, outright rebellion against God. In Genesis 11, the people said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. See, similar to how God said, Let us build, let us make man in our image, as speaking of the triune God, here we have the people rising up saying, Hey, let us build ourselves a city and make a name for ourselves. This was the carrot the serpent waved in front of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, where he told them that they could become like gods, that they could break out of the God community and create their own and control it. And of course, humanity has uh, never proven itself capable of controlling anything. We only ever lose control. And of course, we read uh, you know, throughout the Bible that every time this happens, it's to disastrous results. And at the end of that story, perhaps the most necessary yet difficult thing God ever had to do, He scatters and divides His own people. And this is where the story of creation kind of leaves off, and it all branches in different directions. But it's not where God's story ends. And it's not where our story ends, thankfully. Over the next 2,000 years, God creates His own nation to be the example to the rest of the world regarding His will for His people. And this nation is a community of God's people united around the idea uh, under God's sovereignty. And, and, And there's a preview of what's to come, not the template. God didn't want nations cornered off to themselves. He wanted a universal kingdom for everybody, which is why He told Israel to remember those that were strange and from faraway lands. But the real thing that God is pressing throughout the picture of Israel is that He was building a community that would transcend tribe and tongue, that would transcend and over, uh, reach over borders and barriers, that God was going to build the church, a refuge for all people until kingdom comes. And the kingdom will fully and finally realize God's dream apart from the curse of sin. And the New Testament makes this clear. This isn't just a Jewish thing or a certain kind of people thing. This is for everybody. The answer for all of our desires, as Ecclesiastes foreshadows that we need. Now, the Apostle Paul would write a lot about the church. In light of early division, he wrote to the church in Ephesus how they should get along rather than walking away and not speaking. Ephesians chapter 2. For He Himself, Christ, is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down the flesh, in the flesh, the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that He might create in Himself one new man or a new species in the place of the two, Jew and Gentile, so making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. But isn't it true? We are as hostile as ever in our world. And the church should be the one thing that is making a difference. The one thing is waving a flag that we will not tolerate hostility. That we are not here to build walls. We are here to bring together in community the family, the children of God. Verse 22, in Him you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You know what that tells me? There's no building apart. 
There's no being built in an individual silo in your own corner. It is all about being built together. If you are being built as a part of God's family, you are being built together. There's no individual. There's no separate. There's no isolation. The church is a community that says all of us are in this together. The Apostle Paul would write to the Galatians, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, as in you've taken off the labels that you may define yourself by, the labels this world has put on you, the label politics and other identity things have put on you. You've put off those things. you put on a new identity. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. As in, we're not most defined by anything that's external. We are most defined by what is internal, our faith in Christ Jesus. That is the label that means the most. Sin will still try to resist this, but the New Testament makes it very clear that the thing in us that wants to shirk this, there's something in us that wants to put off our accountability to God and our responsibility to others. And we need to be well aware that is from the enemy. You think you're okay with the devil that you know, but that's only because you've not met the God who you can know on a deeper and more personal level. Anyone, any, always has been the fact, if you remember back in Genesis chapter 3 when the Lord called the man that was hidden, he said, where are you? He called Adam, and Adam was hiding from God. He was trying to shirk his accountability. And it says, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. But we don't have to hide as Christians. We can run and find a refuge to God and we can know that He accepts us as we are. You know, sin wants you, wants you to shirk your accountability, but it also wants you to shirk your responsibility. Just like in the following chapter when Cain rose up and killed his brother, the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? And he said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And God said, yes, you are. Sin wants to isolate you. It wants to remove accountability toward God's and responsibility towards others. But Jesus stepped onto the pages of history and said, yes, you are your brother and sister's keeper. Yes, you are uh, the, the keeper of the one to the left or to the right. And the Holy Spirit enters our heart and gives us this universal marching order to each and every believer, each and every child of God. You're accountable to God. And as accountable to God, you are required to be responsible for one another. The New Testament tells us that the church is God's full and final call into community. Jesus taught that God was building a church that would quench the fires and the spirit of hell. It's attempt to ward us off from God's will. He called 12 men to follow Him, and He called those men to fish for others. Now, fishing for others speaks of pulling people out of those dark and difficult places. You don't put hooks in people, obviously, uh, but you throw a rope to the people. You get down into the pit with them and carry them out. You do whatever it takes because it's relational. And I think this is where, we, where it all falls apart for us sometimes. Because we try, but we're not good at it. And we don't really know where to start with people. Because unless you kind of were raised with them, unless you fell in love with them, unless you, you, you raised them right, you don't know what to do with people that you know, you, you're told you're supposed to love. You're told you're supposed to be in community with. You're told that you're supposed to walk across the aisle and get to know them and care about them and reach out to them. But you don't know what to do. And people that you run into in your daily lives that you really don't have the time for and something inside of you says, hey, you don't really need to worry about them. But God says, hey, you do need to worry about them. Where do you start? 
Ecclesiastes gives us kind of this basic template that you should see the value in that person, not the burden. You should see the benefit from knowing that person, not the negative of reaching out to that person. That you should see the importance of reaching out for them because you need someone that would do that same thing for you. And the Apostle Paul wrote to the Roman church in Romans 14. He says, Let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother or a sister. So Paul says, hey, here's a simple way to start it. Stop judging people and start loving people. It's a simple way in a simple place in a doable thing to begin with, right? Hey, keeping somebody, as in you're your brother or sister's keeper, keeping is better than kicking. And we're good at kicking. But how good are we? How faithful are we at being our brother or sister's keeper? We're good at judging. (laughs) But how intentional are we at loving? And what started as a dozen men following Jesus turned into thousands of disciples in just a matter of years. And you can read from Genesis to the Gospels, God sought to restore His original vision of creation, His community. From the Eden to Ecclesias, a thousand years in the making. It's bigger than just a once a week visit. As a pastor, it's overwhelming for me to imagine and consider how we fit into God's plan. And I say that we can't ignore what and where and who He's calling us to. You know, Jesus gave a couple of great reminders to keep us on track. He gave the disciples the great commission in Matthew 28. And He gave them the great commandment as to how they could fulfill the great commission. The great commandment is, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and might. And the second commandment is just as important, or it's the other side of the coin, as in you can't love God without doing this as well. You should love your neighbor as yourself. You know, you should validate your love for God by loving them. And sometimes love plays the long game. Just like God worked on you, and sometimes you didn't know He was working on you, but He was patient with you, and He didn't shake you every time He loved you and said, hey, when are you going to wake up and get this? Did He? He didn't just get in your face and say, hey, I've been loving you for so long and you're not changing. (laughs) Yeah, we do that to people, don't we? Well, I tried to love them for a week. God said, I've been loving you for decades and you still haven't got it. And I never once have shook you and been rude to you or been puffy to you. And if anybody has the right to get puffed up, it's God. But He never does. So when you love somebody, it takes a long time to crack. It takes a long time to get there sometimes, right? But is it worth it to you? And all this is about growing a great community. And you can read in Acts, this great community was a refuge, was a solace, was a place, a haven for people to come together and find the love that the world did not and would not give them. You know, ultimately, a community is about creating a common unity between uncommon creatures. We're all unique. We all have plenty of excuses and reasons to resist change in each other, but we have to make a choice. The church is about making this choice. And as a church, we have to prioritize this above all. And I know people say, well, Justin, isn't a church's priority evangelism? I mean, isn't it all about reaching people and baptizing people and filling pews up? I mean, isn't a church's priority about worship and having awesome experiences and having loud music and awesome? Isn't a church's priority about making sure that your doctrine is right? and making sure that everybody knows that you're for this and you're against that and you are that and you aren't that. 
I mean, isn't the church's priority about being a place of recovery where people from certain places can find help? Or or isn't a a church's priority about serving the community and serving outwardly? But you know how all those things are taken care of? When the church prioritizes community. We prioritize being a place, a family, a house that welcomes and bids and makes a home for everybody. You know, my goal isn't to be bigger, it's to be closer, to be focused, where everyone matters and no one can hide. And we are our brothers and sisters keepers, and we can't let somebody hide from God. We need to hold one another accountable. But this depends on you. It depends on every single one of you. And you're not going to get to be able to get to heaven. Here's the thing. That's pastor. I love y'all. And I, don't, you know, I try not to be hard on everybody, but the word sometimes is hard on me, so I'm hard on y'all. But that's just being friends, right? None of, nobody under the sound of our preaching is ever going to get to heaven and say, God, I wanted to do something for you, but I never got the chance. I wanted so badly to serve the kingdom, but they just never gave me the opportunity. Don't got to worry about that with me. And the Word calls every one of us into accountability. And you say, me? Listen, Jesus gathered 12 men in a little room, and one of them was demon-possessed. And they took over the world. There's hope for y'all. He kicked the demon-possessed guy out, but still, that's 11 guys, right? He changed the world with 11 rabble men. He gave them a commandment to love one another, to build, to become a community, the community. And the question is, are you going to respond to the scriptural command, creation's original intent, to be, to not just join the church, but become the church? You may say, my life can't revolve around church. And it should not, but it should revolve around Jesus. And he will sort your priorities out, won't he? You say, that's radical. I know it's radical. It's radical love, and that's what saved me and you, and that's what saves people. 1 Corinthians 12 tells us that we are, you are the body of Christ. So we can't run away from this. This is our identity. It's not just our job, our hobby. This is who we are, the bride of Christ. And listen, showing up is important. Stepping up is essential, but opening up is even more vital. The world needs a safe place to land, and this isn't, that isn't defined by politics or personal interest, but something universally appealing, a community that has universal appeal. You know, there's a verse in the New Testament from 1 John 4. Y'all know this. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he can see cannot love God whom he has not seen. Now that's easy, right? It's easy to understand. But you know what I, God showed me as I started thinking about this? If you, a believer, can't love God without loving your neighbor, could it be that your non-believing neighbor may not feel God's love until they feel yours? I mean, if it works, that, if it works one way... What if it works the other way? And what if somebody might not ever see God until they see you? Why else would we be held to such a high standard? Because God so loves the world, and if you so love God, you will too. Now next time we'll get into the nitty-gritty personal details of what it looks like to love somebody and try to be there for somebody in that personal way. But until then, we've got to be committed to community. This is more than just about attendance. I grew up hearing preachers fuss about church attendance all the time, and all it did was make people come less. 
I'm after something greater and bigger from every one of you and want something greater and bigger for all of you. Because scripturally speaking, we don't just attend church. We partner within it. We live from it. You see, this is about your identity. Identity is bigger than attendance. Anyone can show up, but identity is about belonging and believing and behaving, and it's about being in a circle of God's community. You can hide in pews, but you can't hide in circles. So the question is, will you respond? Will you give? Will you serve? Will you live for God's community? Will you follow Him and lift others up and do your part to foster, develop, and grow His community? And you'll only find your true identity when this, when this, when this is what wakes you up every morning. I said this before, but biblical worship is about substantial, sustainable, lasting revival, not just an incremental fleeting refresh. This is why we prioritize as a church being about a community first. Because sometimes in life, We stumble along, but together we'll never have to stumble alone. The experts say that in 4.5 billion years, the Milky Way galaxy and the Andromeda galaxy is going to collide. And some planets and stars will be spit out and form a new galaxy, but there's nothing we can do about it. And there's no way to know for sure exactly how it's going to happen. That doesn't matter to you. Even if you could stop it, that's a long time for now. But you're going to collide with somebody this week, aren't you? Every 4.5 seconds, you collide with somebody. What if there was a way to collide together? What if there was a way to love and live and lead in our world for God's glory, for our Father and for our family, and be better for it?